0: can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New
1: Books Network. Hello and welcome to the New Books Network, New Books in Chinese Studies. I'm your host today, Lance Percy, postdoctoral research fellow at Waseda University. And we are joined here today by uh, Professor Christopher Atwood, who is professor of Mongolian and Chinese Frontier and Ethnic History and Chair of the Department of East Asian Languages and Civilizations at the University of Pennsylvania. Hello, Chris. Hi, how are you, Lance? Yeah, great to have you here. And uh, today we're going to be talking about your 2021 book, The Rise of the Mongols, Five Chinese Sources, which was published through Hackett, a lovely slim paperback volume. Yes, And you are the editor and translator of these uh, five primary sources in Chinese. And you also provide us with a wonderful introduction that's very detailed, full of uh, lots of interesting uh, treatments of conventions of how to translate these uh, and discuss these historical sources. And this uh, book was also... um, uh, Produced partly in collaboration with a Lynn Struve, if I'm correct. That's another yes. name
0: mentioned on the book. Yeah, yeah. Professor uh, Professor Emerita uh, from India University.
1: Excellent. So, just to get us started off, uh, um, I should also say, actually, for listeners uh, tuning in, uh, Chris has already done a wonderful, superb interview about this book with uh, the Chinese Literature Podcast. So, if you want a different side of this book and uh, another discussion of this book you can also check those guys out Um, but today we should be covering part of that but also covering other aspects of this book but uh, to start us off I'd like to ask Chris how does one become a historian of pre-modern Mongolia and China? (coughs) Um. It, it, it happens when you um, take
0: the wrong class. That's really usually where it starts. Um, so I was a freshman at Harvard, I want to say, in um, uh, 1980 – gosh, it's been so 1982, it must be. Um, and um, so there was this class, Empire of the Mongols, taught by Joseph Fletcher. Um, and it was just, it was great. Um, and there was an interesting thing about it that actually, what turned out to be very important, very formative, for this book, which was that it was a, a, a it was a, a class that was about the Mongol Empire, from the sort of rise up to about the middle of the 14th century, taught entirely through. Assigning students translations of primary sources. Um, so you did not have a twentieth century. I guess that was back then. Nineteen eighty-two was a twentieth century. You didn't have a twentieth century historian telling you what it all meant and sort of giving you some kind of synthesized account of it. You had all these just these primary sources, and you had to make sense of it. So that was just really interesting. Um, and I it's kind of also it um, think about it uh, back. It also sort of sparked my interest in medieval history. Uh, before then, I'd been primarily doing, you could say, ancient history, or uh, just reading and, and being really interested in ancient history, uh, or else modern history, you know, the usual, you know, you know, World War II or something, you know, all, all the topics that um, nerdy kids are interested in, um, but also like the Greeks and, you know, the uh, ancient Egypt and Mesopotamia and that sort of thing. Um, but so this was, in the Middle Ages always seemed a little bit kind of like You know, not so interesting. But the Mongol Empire was also just a really interesting, a really great medieval empire. Um, And so uh, that was kind of... I I actually went into college thinking I was going to be either a paleontology major or a sort of paleontology or philosophy. I couldn't quite quite decide which. So um, by the end of my freshman year, I kind of dropped that idea and I decided I was going to do something related to the Mongol Empire. Now, some of the sources that, that, enough, that we encountered the secrets to the Mongols in the, um, near the end of the class, because it's kind of funny, the book didn't come out until the December of that semester. So then we had to read it in December. Um, it was sort of last as opposed to first, which would have been uh, more appropriate. But uh, the other ones were either Chinese or Persian. And or there was also some others, Latin and, and Armenian and so on, but it'll a lot. The bulk of it was Chinese or Persian. So I figured, okay, I want to do Mongolian, so I do either Persian or Chinese. And I figured, looks like the Persians they've really translated a lot. Uh, the the Persian is a big translator. The Chinese haven't. So if I want to read them, I have to read them in the original. So I better learn Chinese. So I decided, okay, I'll do East Asian. So that's how I, I did East Asian. Um, Joseph Fletcher also. Um, He helped me do a program that was being taught in Inner Mongolia at the time, which was uh, run by uh, Henry Schwartz from Western Washington University. So um, that was also a great program. So I got to go to Inner Mongolia, I I want to say for the first time in 1984, and I did a couple more times. Then from 1986 to 1988, I got a travel fellowship from Harvard as I graduated that allowed me to stay in Inner Mongolia for two years. Um so and then I entered graduate school um at uh Indiana University um to do a doctorate there. So it that was a, the sort of process. I I guess it, you know, at some point if it, you know, had become boring or not so interesting, maybe I might have dropped it, but it never became boring. Um so uh I, I I I continued to work on that. My time period shifted a little bit. I actually did my dissertation on the twentieth century. Um, but uh, then, after I finished that, uh, I had to teach the Mongol Empire. So, um, you know, when you have to teach something, you start thinking oh, yeah. the materials that are available. I could just teach what I learned with Fletcher, but the materials were there were. I knew that there were a lot of really good Chinese sources that hadn't been translated. So I thought about it. I should start try to translate them. So that's where this book came from.
1: Wow. So. Uh... Yeah, so, so it was kind of it was Mongolia that took you to China, and then kind of l- then looking back to Mongolia through through those that lens. Yes, yes, and, uh, yeah. I, and so, am I right in saying this book is possibly several decades in the making? Then, yes, yes. Yeah. So, it,
0: yeah, so I a lot of the stuff came. Um, I had some editions of these Chinese sources that I purchased in uh, Inner Mongolia. I, I, I worked on them um, and. Um, I, I was learning as I was working on them um, and I did a fair amount of work on it uh, at the time also um, uh, this was when I was a junior faculty member at, at in Indian University uh, a senior colleague uh, full professor in, in the history department was Lynn Struve and she was a wonderful wonderful professor um, and um, uh, she would also been on my uh, I this unusual arrangement actually, graduated from Indian University and then actually got a job there, which is a little unusual. But um, uh, she was also on my dissertation committee and had been, I'd taken late Imperial China with her. Um, she's a wonderful person, famous for, uh, famous in the field for like reading Qing Dynasty and uh, late Ming, early Qing memorials, sort of on her inner, inner, inner bed at night for entertainment. <laughs> so, very hardcore. Um, so she was. One, so she also gave me a lot of. Uh, I, I showed these. Trans, I did translations that I began using for the class, uh, and I showed them to her, and she gave me a lot of help. Um, my, my, I, I was sort of learning my classical Chinese as I was going on, and uh, she gave a tremendous amount of help. So by about like 2002 or something, I had a number of class materials that had gone already gone through her sort of here eagle eye one time. Um, and I was using these just um, as paper versions for class. And I, I, I didn't quite know what to do with them. I didn't really, um, uh, but I so I just kept on using them for classes. Um, and, that just went on for a long time. I was working on another thing for dissertation. I mean, I, I couldn't usually really translate for my tenure book because uh, that's not, you can't, you can't use your the translation for your tenure book. So I had to just kind of sit on them. Uh, and so my tenure book was about um, nationalist movements in Inner Mongolia in the 1920s, uh, young Mongols and vigilantes. Um, and that book, uh, once that came out, I also did another thing, this sort of big, after I was tenured, I would I uh, worked on this Encyclopedia of Mongolia and the Mongol Empire, which is kind of a, um, a, a rather large um, undertaking, but also kind of very general. And then I began sort of doing uh, some kinds of, of monographic research, and I were working on a number of things, which you can talk about um, later. But I was always, as I was teaching, I was always using a lot of these materials. Um, and then it was, I want to say, who was it? I, want, I think it was Sarah Schneewind, um, and it might have been someone also before, but I think, uh, I think the key person was Sarah Schneewind, um, who is um, uh, also a professor of Chinese history specializing in the Ming Dynasty. And she asked – was on this Facebook Sinologist group, which is a really interesting community, um, and – uh, every you know, people would ask things, and every once once upon a time, she, she she asked me, or she asked the group, everybody. I mean, you know, does anybody have something translated from the uh, from the Mongol Empire times? Uh, that would be – I could use in a class. And so I thought, okay. I'll, I, so I sent her a few of these materials, and she was like, you know what? You should really publish these. Um, and then she said something also really important, which was she said, you should publish with Hackett because she had published with Hackett before. Um, and she had enjoyed the experience, and she thought it was a good uh, a good publishing outfit. And so I sort of somewhat uh, kind of thinking about it. I said, okay, I'll send a um, – Send an email to um, the person that you mentioned, and so Rick Todd Hunter uh, um, was the, the editor, and he was great. I, I told him actually, um, I, I, uh, uh, if you want to publish this work, I'm going to have to tell you something. You're going to have to bug me a lot because I have a lot of things going on, and I tend to get somewhat distracted. I think this podcast took two years to set up as you were mentioning um, <laughs> and so but you got to keep at me you got to keep at me and yet um so keep at me but don't be annoying don't do it in an annoying way and i, I won't get annoyed by with you and he just did he was very friendly but he kept he kept kept at me um quite regularly so um and so he got the stuff um so that was um so at that point So that's, you know, at that point I sort of sent it to him and I began sending the materials. Um, I also mentioned at that time, I I mentioned, oh yeah, there's this other thing I I hadn't known about at the time. Uh, There's another source. Um, So about four of these, I already had kind of semi-translated versions of them. Three of them I had, you know, definitely translated versions of. One of them I had a little bit, the, the... the um, Spirit Path Steely for His Honor Yelun. That I had it. I rather different version of it, but which I can uh, explain a little bit. But there was an. I learned that there was another source in 1216 in my research on on, on things. Um, the famous Li Xinchuan, who was a Sung historian, wrote an account of the how the Mongols had these these Tatars, as he called them, Dada, had. Shatter the Jin Dynasty, which was the sort of big enemy of the Song, um, and dynasty in southern China. Song Jin Dynasty being north China, and the Song being in southern China. So the Jin Dynasty got shattered by the Mongols, and he had this big two-volume history of of Southern Song. Politics and um, uh, issues. It's very highly regarded as a as a Chinese history, uh, although it's a it's a private history or uh, not a not one of the dynastic histories. But so this this private history actually had a a, a um, the Mongols come in two parts. One is about. How the Jurchen, the Jin, was driven south, and the other one is about how the Mongols conquered them. It's a little bit, you know, they're kind of two sides of the same coin. Uh, And I told Rick about this. I said, Oh, this is in 2016, and this is actually the first connected narrative account of Chinggis Khan in any language any language anywhere in the world. And so Rick was like you must translate that. <laughs> you know, he he wanted to be able to put that in the uh, in the in the in the uh, advertising copy. This is the first one. So and that was a sensible request. Uh, so and I I thought it was also a good idea to have that so I translated that as well.
1: Yeah, I, I totally sympathize with uh, having to teach a course and wanting to use primary sources and then kind of looking around and realizing that maybe the if there is anything in English to give students, it may have been translated in like the 1890s or something. And then you're sort of dealing with like, well, I mean, this translation in and of itself is a historical artifact that has all these layers. So you can't just give it to them. you like, I'll use this uncritically. Is it just a translation? So I think. I definitely think that, yeah, we need more translations, more up to date translations out there, of which this is a wonderful addition. I should also mention that um, you recently, in 2023, when we're recording this, you have also just published uh, a your own translation of A Secret History of the Mongols. And there is also an MBN uh, interview um, by uh, Baggy Freeman, I believe interviewing about that uh, published in this last month so uh, to start off with talking about these sources and the secret history of the mongols that you've just published these are both kind of talking around the same period we're talking about kind of early to late 13th century um, and the same kind of historical events but am i right in thinking that they tell a very very different story could you just elaborate what are we going to get from these five sources that's different from what we're going to get from your secret history of the Mongols? Yeah,
0: this, that's a really good point. Well, one, obviously there's a very different, um, um, very different perspective. There's a saying that goes around that really bothers me. And I don't like it because it's often, oftentimes not true though. The victors write the histories. Um, I, I don't like this for a couple of reasons. First of all, it's actually factually not true. Uh, very frequently, Uh, There are many empires, uh, particularly in the earlier period of history, where the only people who ever write the histories are the people who get conquered. Um, so I also just like it, just because I think it feeds into this whole idea that, um, as Henry Ford famously said, "History is mostly bunk." Um, now, as a historian, I, I, I you know, I, 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 am a proponent of critical reading. I do not think people should read histories uncritically. Um, even you know, to histories written today, we should be have for perspective on them. But the idea that um, that in, in general, I find it's, I, I find that I have a, I have more concern to get the students to take many of these sources seriously as sources than I do to sort of say, oh, you should be critical. Because I think I think most people, particularly when they're very odd or strange and, and many of them, especially if they have like any supernatural elements elements in them, then students are immediately on their guard. It's gotta be there's gotta be some kind of propaganda or something like that. So um, but one of the things that I think is that, – that that saying brings up is, of course, a question of perspective. And today I think we're really aware of the whole issue of like empires. I mean empires are a lot like conquest. Conquest and empire brings in things like deportations, slavery, all kinds of you know um, uh, conquest – uh, ethnic or racial hierarchies. I mean, we're we're all familiar with these things, and we're also all familiar with the fact that um, all of these things can be glossed over, or sort of covered up, or sort of treated as, uh, oh well, that's sort of out of the picture. So, um, and I think so. The thing that I th- is really important. Um, these two these two different types of histories. I would like people to read. You know, and, and it's not just because it increases my royalties. <laughs> As you know from academic publishing, the royalties are not what we're in it for. <laughs> um, but I would like people to read them both because they have a different, one is a perspective fundamentally of the conquered. That's these five Chinese sources. One is, the, the other is fundamentally the perspective of the conquerors. That is the secret history of the Mongols, which is written of, by, and for, the sort of imperial conquest court of the uh, of the mongols and there's it's it's a really great chance to see the same thing from two different sides so that's the first thing i would um i'd want to focus on and as a as a um as, so the the rise of the Mongol five Chinese sources what you don't get is a very good sense of the what's going on in the court the sort of family history Chinggis Khan's family relations? How does he feel about his sons? How do his sons get along with each other? What's his relationship with his wife? What's his re- well, yeah, wife? What's his relationship with his mother? The the, the rise of the Mongols, 510, so it almost completely ignores that. Um, what you do get, though, is also very valuable. First of all, you get a, a kind of ethnographic account. The secret of the Mongols is not concerned to tell you about how the Mongols, you know, how they do... Things, how they, how do they make fermented mare's milk? How do they? What kind of foods do they eat? Um, uh, how, how are their camps organized? But the rise, of the Mongol five Chinese sources, because it is Chinese envoys or people working with the Mongols, um, they're really, con- they're very interested in these things, and they give really nice descriptions of a lot of the aspects of the Mongols. Right now, I'm working on a paper on, um, it's actually a paper about uh, uh, animals in the in the Mongol Empire, which is a little bit. <laughs> basically it's all uh, me creating a big spinning a big cocoon around the fact that I translate one animal secrets to the Mongols as a bison and the other one as a gerboa um, and I have to explain why those why I, why I translate them that way well I found a lot of useful descriptions about hunting and about other aspects of the Mongolian food ways um, that were very useful for describing the animals in Rise of the Mongols, Five Chinese Sources. So I quote that quite a bit. Um, So that's one of the reasons why you want to read it, because you get a little bit of sense of someone coming in. What would it look like? What would these Mongol camps look like? They're huge camps. Um, The other thing that's also uh, very important, I think, is that the Mongol Empire um, was was from the beginning a, a kind of a multi-ethnic empire and it was really directed towards conquering North China. One of the things that I've sort of come to have a very strong realization is that, that there's a, a there's a little bit of an approach and it's it's kind of almost an approach that the the secret history actually kind of Encourages, I think, for, for reasons that are kind of embedded in in the secret history's own history, history. Uh, kind of wanted to sort of say the Mongols, the the you know Chinggis Khan did he unified the Mongols, all the various groups and warring little um, little small kingdoms and 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 sort of mercenary companies and things like that that were kind of roiling around in Mongolia at the time, and he unified them. He then very soon afterwards conquered North China. Uh, and there's, there's – a, a, sometimes I think the way we want to say this is that it's to sort of say, oh, the unification of Mongolia is one process that's finished. Then they had to – he had to conquer uh, – uh, when he starts conquering China, that's something completely different. Um, and that's really not true. The, the conquest of North China was directly growing out of the unification of Mongolia, and this is because, in fact, um, all of this chaos in Mongolia wasn't just because Mongolians are naturally chaotic. It wasn't because Mongolians are 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 savage tribes. Um, this is this sort of the sort of standard um, uh, cant of of civilization uh, that you, you that is. Found in the Chinese sources as well as in, in, in sources of many other cultures and so on, uh, the idea nomads are sort of inherently chaotic or something like that. Um, this isn't inherently chaotic. This, the nomads, if they're not chaotic, um, the Ch- neighboring Chinese dynasties work really hard at making them chaotic uh, because making them chaotic is really useful for Chinese foreign policy. Ain't. Um, this is a, a, um, the Jin dynasty, which is not exactly a Chinese dynasty, but of course fulfilling the sort of power political role of a, of a Chinese dynasty. Was very strongly, and we see this kind of on, on the receiving end in the secret history of the Mongols. Uh, before Chinggis Khan's time, we see uh, this. The, you know, um, the Chinese have this famous phrase, e um, ji. so use barbarians to control barbarians, and it's oftentimes seen as, "Oh, this is why Chinese policy is is not very militaristic; it's more about more clever and sort of um, controlling things without big warfare." But from the from the from the receiving end, this is all about having um, sneaky guys come in and convince one cousin to um, who is has seen his other cousin become a big con to, um, you know, for a payment for some consideration. Kill him, <laughs> capture him, deport him to uh, send him off to the Golden Khan, the ruler of China, and have him killed. And so the um, so as a result, the, the the unification of Mongolia was Chinggis Khan when he was doing that was using a particular um, a Chinggis Khan was using a particular concatenation of circumstances in the Jin Dynasty. Uh, that's discussed by, particularly by Zhaogul, um in which suddenly the, the Jin Dynasty feels that a lot of this sort of border maintenance is getting a little bit expensive. So they decide to try to build a wall, and then beyond the wall, they'll have a favorable big-shot guy um, um, become a power. And so... Um, but this kind of uh, doesn't work out very well. Um, but uh, the... Um, so the 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 result of this was is that when the Mongol when Mongolia is finally unified by Chinggis Khan, he had all kinds of uh, he had first of all he had all kinds of bitterness and and um, un, unsated you know um, uh, hatred of these people who had as he says killed some of my fathers and grandfathers that's one side the other side is realistically you know um, if he doesn't actually attack the Jin dynasty at some point the Jin dynasty is going to they may not attack him directly but they may he may suddenly find that all of his generals are are rebelling against him or something like that something's going to happen uh, that will cause some form of disintegration of his regime um, and very fortunately for Chinggis Khan, right when he became unified Mongolia, the Song Dynasty attacked the Jin Dynasty. Um, and I, this is one of those interesting little things, that, that the 1206 revanchist war of the Song Dynasty. You could make an argument that it was one of the turning points in world history, that it uh, made the Jin Dynasty unable to deal with Chinggis Khan, uh, his rise in a way that they might otherwise have done, thereby creating the conditions for – the Mongol Empire, good going, some dynasty. Um, so, <laughs> uh, so, so the so it is. So what? What I'm uh, what I'm trying to say here is that the the conquest of the unification of Mongolia and the conquest of North China are are not really separate things. In fact, many times, literal people like um, the the uh, refugees from one from the unification of Mongolia also took refuge in particularly in the in the, the the Xixia, the Tangut dynasty in northwestern China and other places and connections he made, they were all in that north China area. And as a result, it was really a foregone conclusion that anybody who did unify Mongolia would also then want to follow up and, 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 and ratify that conquest and make that conquest much more secure by forcing the Chinese dynasties in north China into a subordinate position. Because otherwise it would be um, um, very difficult. Now, that ends up turning into, by kind of processes we can talk about, I think the original plan of Genghis Khan was more to make the Jin Jin dynasty. Jin means gold in Chinese, so Mongols call him the Alten Khan, the the Golden Khan. So the, the, the Golden Khan was supposed to be forced into sort of a tributary thing, tributary relationship. But he wasn't really didn't want to do that, and in fact was remarkably stubborn, and and the, the Jin Dynasty court was very stubborn about um, not doing that. And as a result, the Mongols ended up kind of administering and conquering, conquering and administering large chunks of North China. And that is that administration process and the sort of, you know, sort of the conquest and devastation of, of China. That's something that these authors in Rise of the Mongols, Five Chinese Sources, talk about. Um, in very vivid ways, in very, ways that are very, extremely important sources for historians. Whereas for the secret history, the secret history basically never left Mongolia, as far as I can tell, and really didn't have any, didn't really have any, any, any uh, personal experience with being either in sort of in the conquering Mongol armies, let alone being the conquered. So. Uh, you get a diff- very different picture, but it's a picture that's also, um, you, you know, it's equally valid. The perspective of the conquered is valid. The perspective of the conquerors is is valid. These are both different sides of of the same process.
1: Yeah, and and that leads us nicely onto uh, kind of approaching these sources uh, one by one, starting with the one that you said was the latest edition. It's the earliest source, but it was the later one to be added to it, which is a Li Xin-Tran source that uh, extracts from this very large private history that he compiled and was completed in uh, 1217. So, yeah, the earliest sources. So this is actually really nice and handy and kind of explaining a bit about what was China and Mongolia in this period, because we have Li Xin-Tran down in the Southern Song, very 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 far away from mongolia and where all of this action is happening so you know between him and mongolia we have the entire jin empire who are dealing with the mongols so um, so kind of two questions that come from this is like for someone so far away i mean even by his own admission he says that this something to the kind of distant affairs cannot be known what is the role of potential bias in what he's saying uh, from a cultural perspective, but also just the information ecosystem. How is he finding out about the mongols and how might that be colored by distance and by cultural prejudice? that's a that's a great um, that's a great question. So yeah,
0: as you described, um, the um, sort of basically within Chinese history we can see there's sort of two, Big sort of central areas. One is oftentimes called the the the, uh, the central plains or North China. It's sort of big, uh, um, big flat plains that are along the lower um, Yellow River uh, up going up until uh, where it's now Beijing uh, and so on. Also extending sort of through the the Wei Valley up to sort of Chang'an and so on. That's the northern part, and that's all under the co- uh, under the control of the Jin Dynasty, who are actually Jurchens—that's uh, to say, people from the f- sort of forest people from uh, the uh, uh, from the um, uh, from Manchuria. Although we often think forest people, they you know uh, we think of them as, uh, in fact, probably what they the, the big ticket items in their life was mostly ginsung um, and selling ginseng and skins and things like that furs um you know sables and so on to uh people in the south and korea and and china they they, from that they rose up to become empire builders and then of course south of that area the the sort of classic area what we call jiangnan which is the um the, the lower yangtze area which is uh from about a couple hundred years before Chinggis khan time had already become the sort of It'd be, it become the economic motor for uh, the most densely populated and, and wealthy part of China. And that, um, and then along the seacoast, um, and that that's all under the control of the Song Dynasty. So those are the two basic areas. So um, – and of course, the, the, the Song Dynasty had originally conquered – or originally been – the Song Dynasty had originally Controlled much of the North China Plain, but it had been driven out of that by the Jurchens around 1126. So from then on, the Song Dynasty has this great sort of bitterness towards the Jurchens, and um, uh, and you see that in some of the sources. Um, at the same time, though, there's this weird—it's weird. Um, eh, it's weird. It's, I guess it's kind of typical—a uh, international system uh, in which everybody sends. Um, everybody sends um, these New Year's greetings. So the, the emperor of the Song Dynasty sends New Year's greetings to the emperor of the Jin Dynasty from so in, in what's now Beijing. So the Song Dynasty emperor is in what's now Hangzhou. And then the, um, the Zhejiang emperor is in what he calls Zhongdu, which is in um, modern Beijing, or Yanjing is what it's often called in the sources. So and uh, if the emperor's birthday, they send things. So these... Although there is in fact in some sense a kind of uh, there's actually a lot of uh, it's difficult for books, for example, to cross the frontier. There is regular diplomatic interaction and that's probably it looks like there's certain interesting passages which indicate that that's what Li Xinjuan was largely relying on. He was getting information from Song Dynasty envoys who had been visiting the Jin Dynasty Uh, and um, so in 1211 they would Hear from the Jin Dynasty that we've got this trouble on the frontier, um, and then you know they might have even, um, it, depending on the on the season, uh, the Mongols. The, one of the Song envoys might have actually been in the capital of zhongdu as the Mongol sort of outriders were kind of like riding around the capital, things like that. So probably got a ringside seat to some of the action. Um, similarly, and then and that continues on. Eventually, so that those are pro, appear to be the, 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 the main sources that he's using. And it's a kind of interesting, it's a delicate thing to use them because, of course, what he's getting is the Song Dynasty reports from Jin Dynasty people about the troubles that the Jin Dynasty is having. So, as you can imagine, there's a kind of tendency. Um, I mean, he's he's not super broken up with sadness about what's happening to the Jin Dynasty. Um, although I have to say, compared to some other writers, he's actually compared to Zhao Gong that we'll talk about later. He's actually in some ways, um, uh, at least in tone, and, and I think the information is actually um, he seems relatively uh, making an effort to not be to not let his um, sort of political rivalry with the Jin dynasty color his account too much certainly, from his account, um, the Jin dynasty is um, he, he doesn't need he, he, he's happy to talk about the the problems of the Jin dynasty frontier management. he's also very happy to talk about the mongols you know um, burning. Burning the capital was now Beijing, Zhongdu. It's a little it's not exactly modern Beijing. It's well, it's within the present-day urban territory of Beijing. But it's kind of in the south southwestern corner. Um, and so he said, you know, and that the the Mongol official there, Samukhabater, who is uh, a, the official there, is very both sort of brutal and luxurious and sort of not a pleasant character so he's happy to say you know um things about the mongols that aren't particularly favorable although interesting enough he's also he's him um, you know Chinggis khan is or temujin as he calls him temujin is not not a you know he's not seen as some sort of monster he's actually a pretty um he's seen as a pretty um um a person who's understandable that he would be sort of a big leader. Um, in other words, there's not like, I, I don't know what they see in this guy. They, they sort of think of him as, um, he sees him as, as somebody. And also, again, he's aware of the various Jin dynasty border management. And he, he, he's happy to say that the Jin dynasty may not have been entirely on the up and up in their dealings with the Mongols, um, the Tatars, as he calls them. So, um, so that's, a, uh, that's something so, – you know, so overall, his, his account is quite factual, um, and it was later quoted on um, – it, it later became actually a very important source. And here's something really interesting. Uh, um, it looks like later on in the Yuan dynasty, they actually made a Mongolian translation of some of this and used that as a source for sources that would later be – in Kublai Khan's time would later become um, – translate into Mongolian and then, and weirdly enough, then translate it back into Chinese and, um, and then preserved to us in this sort of, uh, a, a- something that bears the marks of having been translated from Chinese into Mongolian and then back into Chinese. So it, it kind of looks a little bit like it, but yeah, so that's a, um, and as I said, he's a, he's a generally well-regarded historian. I think I came to share that opinion. Uh, Li Xinchuan seems to be a, a pretty careful guy, gives a lot of details, most of which seem to corroborate uh, fairly well with what we know from other sources. Um, and uh, generally speaking, a within his, within his limits, um, um he is a, a fairly accurate historian
1: yeah and i'd also i mean you point this out uh in your uh, in your brief introduction uh to the uh, the translation of Nishin chan that this is only these are extracts from a quite large voluminous kind of history of everything uh in a song and so um based on this and looking at the rest of this I mean, you've extracted this so you can talk about, you're showing what he says about the Mongols, but where do the Mongols fit within his bigger world? Are they a real concern for him or are they just, because I mean, we have the benefit of hindsight. We're like, oh, this is, we see the foreshadowing or we, we project the foreshadowing into what we're reading here. But for him, was this, was this as a concern as it should have been? It doesn't seem to be. Uh, it's in a, it's in a larger chapter on sort of border affairs.
0: So first of all, it's not the sort of guard guiding thing. It, there's, doesn't really seem to be any sense that this is like you know the tramp of doom for the song Song dynasty and in the border affairs actually it's it's only one section of it and most of the other ones are actually concerned with Sichuan area because the guy was from Sichuan so um so he's from Sichuan um and he is mostly concerned with various difficulties that the Sichuanese are having with Tibetans uh to their west with some uh, Gulau and, and Miao people to their south, and some the uh, Dali Kingdom to the southwest. And lots of little things about these, and they take as much space as does this trouble with the the, the Jurchen, uh, the Jin Dynasty. So it's kind of it's a little bit um, it's it it's an interesting. So it's a, it shows that he does not seem to have seen that this was actually a massive sort of change in and this was not the beginning of a new foreign policy catastrophe. Um and a, another funny thing also is that but in the in the middle of the process though we do hear something that uh he says from 1216 onward I mean it's 12 he, he records it's kind of an interjected thing. I think it actually might have been interpolated. He might have just added it in later. Um Although the date of this is 1217, I think some of the accounts may have actually been, he, he may have added in a few comments actually after 1217. Um, and uh, But he describes um, also how the Mongols tried to actually open diplomatic relations with the Song. The Mongols were actually quite, um, at least at this stage, didn't have any problem with the Song dynasty. They actually wanted to open diplomatic relations. The Jin dynasty had not, by this time, had they um, had moved their capital south of the Yellow River to what's now Hunan province, uh, Kaifeng. Um, but they – and they had um, – they were – he actually is kind of a little bit more worried that this, the Jin Dynasty is going to try to make up their territory by conquering the Song or sort of like conquer along the borders of the Song. Uh, so he's, he's not worried about the Mongols. He's actually a little – seems to be a little bit more worried about the Jin Dynasty. Um but the, uh, he also records how Mongols crossed the Yellow River and tried to open relations with Song. Song wouldn't allow it. The uh, Basically, the border officials were probably given instructions not to receive any diplomatic missions from the Mongols. So they were simply um, sent back. And, um, and, uh, and also around that time, around 1215, because of the chaos in the Uh, uh, in the Jin Dynasty, the Song Dynasty decided it didn't have to send any of those congratulatory messages anymore. They were always kind of annoying to the Song Dynasty because that was like recognizing this horrible rival dynasty as like an equal. Uh, That's how horrible. There's nothing more agonizing in life than that. Um, And yet, actually, that means that that's one of the reasons why from around... um, uh, from after that time, the Song dynasty probably was not very well informed about what was going on in the Jin, Jurchen Jin thing, and also, therefore, in, not as well informed about the Mongols. So we have this for, – for Li Xinchuan, Samukha Bhattar is the sort of big Mongol commander under Chinggis Khan. He talks a lot about sort of Samukha Bhattar having this kind of rivalry with Chinggis Khan. Like, So Chinggis Khan wants to make peace. But Samkhabata doesn't, because he wants to have more conquests. Um, interesting enough, that whether whether that reality ever ha- whether that rivalry ever happened is kind of um, we don't know. But no other t- source talks about it. But he also appears to realize he kind of mistook Samkhabata with Mohali, which is somebody who's mentioned in many other sources. And it may be that because they were no longer having connections, he kind of confused the two. So near the end, it's kind of that the information blackout gets to be a little bit of a problem.
1: Wow. And uh, speaking of, uh, I guess, moving on to the second source in the book, information is also operates in a different way when we work with historical sources. And this gets highlighted in the source of Jiao Gong because it's not just a matter of what information goes into a source being written in the first place, but then how does that source get transmitted and preserved? And as I understand it, the Jiao Gong sources was kind of a very precarious kind of journey into its survival. Yes.
0: Yes, yeah, so Jiao Gong was preserved um, for uh, for posterity in the uh, in the 1370s, um, 13, sometime between 1360 and probably about 1375, 1380, something like that. That is to say, in that very very chaotic period between the fall of the Mongol Empire, the Yuan Dynasty, which or the Mongol Yuan Dynasty, as it's often called, and the rise of the Ming Dynasty, which was a uh, um the, the, Mongol, the, the Mongol conquests were – caused depopulation and were very bad. The The, the Ming dynasty rise was even worse. Uh, actually, sort of the percentage loss, of, at least if we take the figures semi-seriously, uh, was probably even larger. So in that period, though, it's very interesting. There was this guy who lived in what – Songjiangfu, which is – Basically, the name of what's now the Shanghai area, um, and he was an interesting guy. Um, actually, his um, his sister shows up in one of the Yuan dynasty histories um, as a Yuan loyalist. That's because she um, his sister and his sister in law they both threw themselves into a well rather than get raped by Ming soldiers. Um, so he's not super fan of the Ming dynasty. Um, he's a little bit um, although he's kind of he's kind of a Yuan loyalist. So he ends up. But then – so then when the, – now the Yuan Dynasty is over, and he's making this – what he calls the uh, Shuo fu, which Victor Mayer suggested the translation, the purlieus of Expedi- exposition. Uh, basically, it's kind of like the idea of all of the f- interesting stories that are within the sort of limits of orthodoxy provided by the Chinese classics. So it's kind of he, – he's, he's going to be varied and, and diverse, but within limits. That's the that's the idea, the purlieus of exposition, shuofu. So he's – and this is basically his private reading notes. And at some point, textual research shows that sometime in, around – probably around the 1370s, he, he, he just gets a whole chunk of writings about the Mongols. And this seems to have been one of those things where people have been holding on to these writings about the Mongols because they were kind of told him about the Mongol Empire – Um, and they were useful for them. But then now the Ming Dynasty sets up, nobody needs them anymore. i throw them away. (laughs) So he seems to have got a lot of copies. I'm a little bit reminded of – I I feel like – well, I was in Mongolia in 1991-92, and it was the same thing. Everybody had – before 1990, everybody had books that were produced from the uh, – during the socialist era, uh, all of these books that were um, document collections about the the socialist government, the party party state government, and all these histories written from the perspective of the Soviet-supported Mongolian People's Republic, and so on and so forth. And by 1991, 92, everybody was, I mean, you could get these things for, you know, at one point, there was literally a, a, a local lending library took me in, and there was a mound of books just sort of just like – like literally like dumped there that was higher than I was. And they said, take anything you want. <laughs> it's it incredible. <laughs> so I have – I sometimes have the visions of, of, of um, Tao Zongyi, Yi, who is the, the compiler of this Shuo Fu, this purlieus of Exposition – being told, going to some government office of the Yuan dynasty, which is now under the Ming, he's, done, he's not a fan of the Ming, but he's told, <laughs> "Here's all this. Here's all these writings about the Mongols that I that I, the district magistrate, accumulated so that I could know who I, you know, know know how my bosses think." All right, take whatever take whatever you want. So one of these things – so he put this together. It's um, an enormous anthology of writings. And one of the chapters was uh, by a guy named Chao Gong, and he called it the, a memorandum on the Hmong Tatars, Hmong Dabe Lu. So this was a, a – this was written on 1221, about five years after uh, Li Xinchuan wrote his history. And 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 so now the information passage about the Mongols uh, in 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 Gong's time had reopened, but it wasn't. It appears it was not information mediated through the Jin Dynasty, but now it was information directly with the Mongol court, because what happened by after by, from about twelve seventeen onwards. Uh, f- up through the next couple of decades, North China was kind of a very chaotic place. The Jin Dynasty was still hanging on in in Hunan, and they also ruled. For most of that period, they ruled. They had they had footholds north of the Yellow River. They even ruled this area, Xinan, which is near Beijing, um, not too about fifty miles from Beijing, but they would supply it by boat. From the uh, through the Yellow River, uh, through the uh, the Yellow Sea, excuse me, from the Bohai Gulf, but they also had a c- control of the the Xian area. Um, and there were, but there were the rest of North China was divided into all of these kind of warlords, and these warlords were, um, uh, some of them were. It became a real Three kingdom style thing. The warlords, the you know, most of them didn't feel confident enough to really establish their own dynasties. So they had each one of them had a choice. I could be a pro Jin warlord. Uh, I could be a pro-Mongol warlord. And eventually the Song dynasty starts coming in and say, I could be a pro-Song warlord. So all these guys are sort of fishing around in this, you know, in this, this sea of, of chaos and, uh, these uh, warlords who are dealing with massive refugee flows and finding people who are sort of you know, um, fleeing Mongol invasions, only to get drawn up in a Jin dynasty conquest and get drafted into Jin armies and so on and so forth. There's also um, there was these um, um, uh, rebels called the Hongao, um, the 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 the, um, um, the red coat. Chinese, Han Chinese rebels, mostly from the Shandong area, founding their own regimes. So in that, all that diplomatic process, that the Song dynasty ends up with the, the, the details of it are a little bit sketchy, but uh, by 1221, Zhao Gong, he actually, the Mongols and the, the Song dynasty have opened direct diplomatic relations and he actually goes to what's now Beijing. Uh, That's a Zhongdu uh, uh, or uh, it's Jin call it or Yanjing, as, um, uh, as the sources call it. And there he meets not Chinggis Khan, but he meets Mohali this guy who is um, a, a Mongolian commander who is was Chinggis, one of Chinggis Khan's boyhood companions, who has now become the viceroy uh, over all of North China. So at this point, North China presents an interesting kind of s- spectacle. The, the Mongols are controlling, you could say, a line kind of, they control most of like, the Taiyuan, um, Linfun area, uh, probably parts of, you know, northern, the northern part of the, the uh, peninsula of Shandong in the area. Of the, then in the, in the south of that, but also in the pockets north of that, also in the mountains, everything is kind of chaotic. There's all these other little groups. So uh, the Mongols are regularly campaigning in North China, and Mohli is trying to slowly – sort of, he's doing this sort of counterinsurgency kind of thing, uh, trying to crush them. So then Zhao Gong, for the first time, he goes in, and he actually sees Mongols. It's unlike – actually, Li Xinchuan, although he was a very good historian and made very good use of his diplomatic contacts to write history. he probably hadn't actually met any Mongols. Um, or tatars as he calls them but uh, but jahou definitely met tatars we have some interesting things where he um, uh, 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 mohali in, uh, says we're gonna have some polo um, you should come out and, and take a look and uh, but he doesn't go and so mohali kind of um, criticized him. You know, we want you to enjoy yourself, man. Have fun with us. And Mokli also tells him, "Hey, you should drink more. Have, you know, have more drinking." Um and the uh, Gong talks about the drinking culture, which is something that all of these later accounts uh all bring in drinking culture because it's a big thing. So, um and it's clear that also um uh, Mokli seems to have had a sense of if if you don't get drunk with us and you know, and speak frankly, then we we can't be allies. Um, they still want the idea is trying to be allies against some dynasty. So Gong has this really Jiaogong has this really interesting perspective. From his point of view, um, the barber the Mongols are okay if they're barbarians. What really starts to worry him is that it looks like they're acquiring civilization. Well, what do I mean by barbarian civilization? Well, what we're one thing that's really it's, I think it's often ignored, but it's really important uh, to get about chi- traditional Chinese ideas about um, about sort of organization, human organization, human complexity, and so on. Is that the 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 what we see as the, a key aspect to sort of being fully human is having a state. Maybe in, in the West, I mean, I think it's kind of interesting there's a um, – you know, you could talk about sort of – there is something of a sort of influence of the the sort of the possibility of anarchism is there. But in traditional Chinese um, sort of anarchistic civilization, civilization really without government, but in Chinese thinking the, the that's Im- embedded in, in many of these texts, the key, first thing you do as you rise is you – You start to to make calendars, you start to declare rulers, you start to organize offices, and all of these things are are part and parcel of moving away from your, you know, barbarous situation, which the scene into something that's civilized. The trouble is, from the Song dynasty perspective, there is already an emperor, there is already a calendar there is already a set of officials it's ours, it's the Song dynasties and so the Mongols if they had just been kind of sort of chaotic and you know, barbarous people, it would have been very easy the Song dynasty would have maybe been able to sort of bring them into the system as tributaries as sort of people acknowledging Song supremacy but Zhaogun's really he's really getting alarmed because the Jin caitiffs, this is this little lu, which is this term that the, um, uh, it's a term in Chinese, which means someone captive or someone who captures other people. There's actually kind of a debate about this in, um, um, about the meaning, but it, it's conventionally translated as caitiffs. So these sort of, these, this is a kind of conventional sinological translation that comes from, from various uh, Apparently it comes from like medieval epics or something. <laughs> they like Roland or something like that. <laughs> Song of Roland. But it's become a, one of these sinological things. So the the Jin cadets, these Jin sort of cowards, have have taught the Mongols. Who uh, the the, the Kadiffs, they've deserted the Jin dynasty. They've now taken service of the Mongols, and they're telling the Mongols how to do things like organize offices and make calendars and things like that. And that's for, for Zhao Gong, this is like corrupting their primitive innocence. They're, you know, they're primitively the Mongols are, he, he kind of admires them in some ways. They seem to be very honest and very direct and straightforward. He talks a lot about their food. Um, he gives it, he's amazed by their army. Um, like you kind of have this whole army and, and not a whole lot of, um, like provisions on the hoof um, things. and this. But remember, he never goes to Mongolia. It's really important. When he describes big herds and sort of Mongol armies and sort of thing, he's describing armies in North China. Uh, so it's kind of a testament to the kind of, of you know, sort of ecological transformation that's already happening in North China. He also describes, um, begins in Pengde, uh, uh, Li Xinchuan had also described this. Um, but Zhao Gong is very clear about the Mongol use of captives, uh, sort of dragnetting large amounts of of Chinese and sending them against um, various, um, sending them against various cities, against the walls of the cities. And this is like so you know people, the defenders in of the walls will sometimes even see their relatives and so on. And then when they're uh, when the city is sacked. If it is sacked, there's also um, a frequent uh, – urban massacres would also happen. Um, that's, um, so he gives that picture of it alongside all these interesting interactions that he has with the Mongols, their hairstyle. He's kind of interested in their hairstyle. Um, so yeah, so, but he's got this very clear perspective in which – the Jin Dynasty is, um, in, in some sense, still, the Jin, he's thinking more about the Jin Dynasty than about the Mongols in a weird sort of way. That is to say, he's most hoping to make sure that the Mongols don't follow the Jin path of becoming an actual organized state in North China that will be a rival to the Song Dynasty.
1: Mm. So that was the... Um... So you, we were just talking about a memorandum on the Mong Tatars by Zhao Gong, and the third the third source that follows that uh, has a, quite a similar title. It's a but it's a sketch of the Black Tatars uh, by Pang Daya and Shu Ting. So these sources together they are actually the, they're the longest in the book, and um, and what I notice is as I feel that there's a, a similarity between them. The uh, the latter sketch of the Black Tatars, Peng Daya Shu Ting. That comes out about it's completed about. Uh, 15, 20 years after Jiao Gong's. But uh, I noticed that they both go into a lot of detail about customs. They go, you know, uh, fermented horse milk and clothing and hairstyles and uh, but also individual people and peoples as well. Uh, so I was just wondering, um, well, first of all, if you could introduce us to Pang and Xu Ting and their relationship, because what you have here is you have a text and then you have by Pang De ya and and a commentary by Xu Ting. So verifying, confirming, or potentially diverging from the the commentary, diverging from the original. But again, they're in this practice of talking about customs a lot. And uh, are are they channeling some kind of ethnographic tradition in China? Or is there a reason why they are so focused on the, the the ways that Mongols are doing things in their daily life and not just strategy and not just warfare? yeah good great question so first of all yeah
0: this is sources written in 1237 the big thing that makes a difference for Peng Dy and Ting versus Zhao Gong is by the by the time they're writing the Jin dynasty is no more the Jin dynasty has been completely wiped out um, not only that although the Song Dynasty and the Jin and the Mongols collaborated in crushing the Jin dynasty the song tried to take over the the, the tried to take over all of Hunan province. uh, And as a result, ended up, the Mongols therefore said, you guys have broken the agreement we made. So um, we're going to now, you're our enemy. So um, suddenly they don't have this sort of triangular relationship. Now it's just Song and they're now kind of hostile. So um, uh, I can just read what Xu Ting says. When I... Xu Ting, first returned from the grasslands, I prepared a narrative of the local habit, habits and customs there. But when I reached Ojo Islet, which is their word for um, the, uh, the Wuchang area and what's now Wuhan city in central China, I unexpectedly met the official who wrote the description in the main entries above Peng daya After some mutual explanation, we showed what we had written to one another for comparison, indeed found that we had no great gaps or discrepancies. So I took what had compiled as a basic text and wherever there was a distant difference I added a note. Yet this only relates to generalities. For my detailed record please see what I have titled The Diary of the Northern Campaign. So this tells us a couple of things. First of all these two people didn't know each other they went to um, the Mongols uh, um, independently. One interesting thing is that these are the first Chinese envoys to actually go to Mongolia. They, it, it, we see from both of them that they went to, first they went to the center of the Mongol administration in North China, which is now Beijing. Then they went all the way up to the Mongol capital, probably somewhere around Karakoram, sort of around the area of Ulaanbaatar, today in Mongolia. Coming back, They'd both written reports. They were envoys at one they certainly must have written reports to their masters. They talked and and, and interesting, kind of wrote up about the customs. Then they sort of put them together. And there's an interesting kind of funny effect. They do have a different perspective. So, for example, at one point, uh, Peng De'a is going on about, oh, the Mongols have these amazing strategies and tactics. They just got such great tactics. And um, and um, uh, and their tactics are just like um, – he's going on about how incredible uh, incredible it is. And then the shooting says – Look, guy, they, they, I don't see anything there. This just seems like chaotic, the mobbing of savages. Um, so it's very funny. Um, uh, they just charge in recklessly without even looking first. Um, and then he, he also points out, they too are men, so how is it they do not fear death? uh it's just from the day when they're mobilized and they quote suffered. they only rarely suffered loss so he's really kind of saying to pungdaya look don't overestimate these mongols we can really fight them so they have different perspectives at one point also Daya says such and such chinese uh such and such um chinese officials have made you know they're, they're, they have titles and they've made a calendar and so on and then Xu Ting says, "Ah, uh, the Mongols don't pay any attention to them. They're not really—they're not really taken seriously. It's just the Mongol family, the imperial family. They really do what they want, and those Chinese officials are just kind of like playing games uh, outside, you know, outside of Mongol control because they really don't have any power. So they have a very different—they have somewhat, somewhat different perspectives. But the interesting thing about the customs is, it looks like." Yes, there's a, there's, this is, they're building on a very large, long uh, ethnographic tradition of the uh, Chinese descriptions of foreign peoples. You can take this all the way back to uh, the famous chapter of the Shiji by Sima Qian, which describes the uh, Xiongnu Zuan, the, the the memorandum or the memorial on the Xiongnu. The Xiongnu being the, the first great nomad um, pastoralist empire on China's northern frontier. So yeah, there is a, a long ethnographic tradition. And these include things like um, um, food, drink, and so on. Um, and you know, a lot of it is its also about their character. Um, it and, and, and it also builds on to very common tropes. There are tropes that they're searching for uh, grass and water. That's how they describe nomadism. Uh, the trope. There's another trope, which just because it's a trope doesn't also doesn't mean it's not. It doesn't mean it's not true that the the Mongols seem to be sort of very naive. Uh, or very trust, you know, they, among themselves, at least, they're very trusting. Uh, they seem to, They're and, and yet, then Xu Ting also points out um, that uh, they also have these these Turkestanis or these Westerners are coming in and have all kinds of um, uh, very sneaky sneaky ideas. Again, you see this kind of difference between this idea of these, um, the, um, it has been called, sort of the, the, The the one stereotype of the simple, the good, but sort of stupid people, that's the Mongols. And then you have this other stereotype of the um, extremely clever, but also very untrustworthy people, which is sort of the Turkestanis, the sort of Westerners, um, uh, Uyghurs, and and, um, people we'd now call Tajiks and so on, and and Iranians coming in from the West. So... um, so that's also part of the customs. But it's interesting. You can really tell that this is part of a set ethnographic description because um, of what you, you don't find. And it's very interesting if you compare these accounts with the Latin travelers from Europe who had come about a decade later. Uh, the, the, uh, there's major areas that the, um, the Latin travelers don't get. But the Chinese observers do, and vice versa. So the um, the Chinese observers are very good; very, they're very focused on trying to get names. They they also need names, and this is partly because many of these names are also ruling in North China, and you know, theoretically speaking, um, they could be potential. Um, some of them, some of these names are names of, of Han Chinese, ethnic Chinese commanders. Who could potentially be maybe turned against the Mongols? Something. Many of them are also just are 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 Mongols. Probably it's unlikely that they're going to actually try to get those guys to go over to the uh, to the Song side. Oh, you never know. And um, uh, there's a lot of switching. There's more switching back on the frontier, though, I think, than we than we realize. So there, the, and where's the um, the. European sources are not nearly so good on actually describing administration and names. So the Chinese sources also want to tell you, OK, here are the offices. Who? Here's a guy. Who's this guy's running the the administration? So on and so forth. And also, they're very Chinese sources are very good on how does the paperwork work? Um, how are these diplomatic letters produced? You can kind of get that out of the European accounts, but you have to – they sort of describe it a little bit. You kind of have to use it. But the Chinese offices are, 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 are much more explicit on that. By contrast, the European authors tell us a lot about um, them being um, uh, Franciscan friars. Um, as you might expect, they tell they talk a lot about religion. Um, so you get much more about the cultic practices, religions, sort of uh, religious figurines that you see uh, that they that they they saw. Um, that's described in great detail, but uh, very little in um, uh, Pengdea and um, uh, Xu Ting. So I, had, I did the index myself and I had a fun moment when I realized that this is kind of in the index, this is me intervening in the question of the universality or non-universality of religion as a category. There is no category for religion in my index but what I do have is ritual. There's a lot about ritual but there's nothing about religion. There's a lot about things that people are doing but there's very there's nothing in these really uh, except there's a little bit about heaven. I mean, they talk do talk both sides talk about heaven. So I have a, a section religion see heaven semicolon rituals. Those are the two things. So um, that's my that, that that's my little intervention in that academic debate there, uh, coded into the index. Uh, but yes, yeah, so there's definitely a tradition of ethnographic observation, and so that's why Zhao Gong and Xu Ting and Peng although none of those three didn't know each other and only the later two of them sort of came together, their observations were kind of similar because they were also mostly observing the same sorts of things. I think they were all reasonably good observers and they, you know, they. Uh, um, there's a few, yeah, you know, obviously there's things where you can you have your, your, um, your questions about them, but most of their observations are strongly corroborated um, in other things and, uh, appear to be the result of a uh, pretty sharp observation
1: wonderful going through this book and going through these five sources uh they're not just chronological but i also noticed that we're getting closer and closer to actually meeting mongols as we progress and so with the final two sources we're working we, we're reading about people who have had direct contact with mongol rulers and uh this leads me to talk about the uh, the fourth source which is um more on my turf as someone who works on uh, funerary inscriptions, but here you have Songzhen's public biography of Ilau Chucai, which is a Shandao which would have been inscribed, erected onto a stone surface, um, uh, so viewable uh, and accessible for, for some people uh, in, as a monument, but also very, very likely circulated and read by uh, by a wider kind of literate community and used as a model for subsequent um, writings in the same literary genre so um, but uh, my question here uh, I, I thought this was a wonderful addition to the book because Ila Chutai is kind of for many people who want to study the early Mongol Empire Ila Chutai is this big kind of uh, beacon if you will that attracts people is a very fascinating and enigmatic figure to write about and so, as an entry into understanding the the kind of the clash or the the meanings of cultures within the early Mongol Empire, so when you're working with Song um, uh biography, uh, how do you find his interest in his presentation of this figure Ilchutai differed from, say, the way that scholars nowadays are writing about him and assessing them? Is there a meaning of them, or do you find that actually, when you go back to Song Zhen, like? It's a, you get a very interesting and different account of him.
0: Yeah, so one that's a very interesting and a, I think a very complex question. Song zhens um, Spirit pastili, um, has been tremendously influential in uh, the histories. We have um, uh, other accounts um, of... of uh, for, we have other later analysts. By the 1340s, a guy named uh, Chen Jing uh, wrote an analystic history of you know the Chinese dynasties from he's completing the Zizhongjian, which is his famous analytic history that ends in 960. So he's going to take it from 960 all the way to his time, which is basically up to about he, he ends it with Kublai Khan unite reuniting conquering the Song. But what's interesting is that for the reign of Ogeday, who is the uh, Chinggis Khan's son, Chinggis is if you, it's the Genghis of, of our tribe although our authors mostly call him Temujin. Um, uh, so the, the Song Dynasty authors call him Temujin, and the, um, uh, uh, the Spirit of calls him the great founder of the dynasty. It was, a name. But um, the Okade was his successor and who ruled the Mongols from 1229 to 1241. What's interesting is that this Chen Jing, who's writing around the 1340s, for Okadei's history, he basically takes only this spirit pastili. He We know he had other available sources. He doesn't use them. This spirit pastili, this account of, not of the emperor actually, but of the emperor's Confucian minister, this is the real story, and this is what needs to be preserved. And uh, in later accounts, uh, the whole account of Yula Chutsai. Uh, in European Jesuit uh, histories uh, becomes a um, – again, a, a kind of set piece for the idea of China being an empire where the civil uh, – the civil official – Eventually, could always win over the military commander. Matt Mosca, in the uh, at the University of Washington, is is work writing a great book on this, in which he and that's one of the he, he he focuses on the figure of Yehuda um, as a kind of site of scholarly contention between Chinese, Mongol, Manchus, uh, uh, Middle Eastern, and all kinds of other other things, it's, it's going to be a great um, study. And the great thing is now you can read the 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 thing with based in a good English translation. Or at least I think it's a good English translation, mostly thanks to uh, um, also to the assistance of. of uh, Lynn Struve, uh, who also gave after, I actually, I should say actually after I went back to Hackett and I started publishing, she also went through, gave me a very, very, very detailed reading, along with a, a couple of other people who also had really good Michelle um, um, Lin of, of Nankai University um, was a visiting scholar here, and he also was very helpful and um, and um, the, the readers, anonymous readers for the press also were very helpful. But so this yeah, this story is um, on the other hand, it's one in which you could say uh, this, there, there's a script. Uh, and the, the, what I call in the introduction, the script, which is how things are supposed to work out, starts to actually be kind of uh, a little bit uh, heavy presence here uh, in this work, maybe more so than it is in the, other, the, the, the previous accounts. Uh, those previous accounts are ones in which – The Mongols are in the category of the foreign other. That's why they get this customs and ethnographic description. So Ilachutzai, this Sungzijun's spirit pastili for Ilachutzai does not give you any ethnographic description. Why? Because um, emperors aren't supposed to have really funky customs. Uh, emperors, I mean, they can have some customs. They can have some things. Like, like They can honor white and the right-hand side officials more than the left-hand side officials or something like that. They don't treat white as a, a mourning color. They see it as a, as a happy color. So um, so the, the, the emperors can be a little bit different, but ultimately what this is about is how Ila Chutsai is trying to get the Mongols to follow the correct system of rule. He's in Mongol service now, so he wants them to win. And it's very funny. Also, Chutsai shows up in both Gong and also in Pengdean Xu Ting's accounts. Um, and that, I, I, I find that's very interesting. And it, 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 um, uh, Xu Ting says something very interesting. One point he met Chutsai and he says, Chutsai told me, uh, and this is a guy who is supposed to be sort of civilizing the Mongols. Um, but it's very interesting. Ting has a very different um, uh, approach. Uh, uh, Ila Chutsai says, if you uh, you guys are relying on just on the, the Yangtze River to protect you you guys in the Song, but if the horses of our dynasty have to go up to heaven to get to you, they'll go up to heaven. If they have to go down below the earth to get to you, they'll go down below the earth. They will get you. So he's really threatening the Song envoy. It's like, in the end, guys, you're going to lose. The Mongols are going to win. And that's in a very interesting... Um, perspective to see because that perspective is 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 nowhere directly stated in Song biography of Hila Chutsai. but it's I think it's actually presumed throughout it. In other words, you can at some point as a reader you might think if this guy has such trouble with these bad Mongol rulers, so who it seem to be bad Mongol rulers who don't know what they're doing, why doesn't he just you know why doesn't he just like flee to the Song Dynasty and work for the Song Dynasty. And the reason is is because he, he's pretty confident that the Song Dynasty is going to lose. Um, and that, you know, in some sense, heaven is on the Mongol side. So he, um, and he, you know, you could say he that's the winning side. He wants to be on the winning side. But I think also from his point of view, if I can tell that heaven wants the Mongols to win and conquer all of China, I'm obliged to to Make the Mongols rule properly. So, in a sense, his loyalty to the Mongols as the legitimate dynasty is is absolute. Uh, it doesn't. It it it's not conditional. No matter what, no matter how how, no matter what misadministration or abuse you get, see described in the biography. It doesn't mean that he's going to like give up on the Mongols and flee off to the Song Dynasty. Um, he's going to stick with them. But at the same time, that also means that he's very, therefore very open to sort of describe whatever kind of maladministration seems to be happening um, in, in that case. So um, and it's very, it does, it has a really interesting narrative arc under Chinggis Khan with um, uh, and they call it, or they call it, as the the source calls him, because by the time Sung Jun was writing, they've created a sort of Chinese-style temple. So they have these Chinese-style temple names. So it's Taizu, which I translate rather than the Great Founder. So under the under Chinggis Khan, who's the Great Founder, um, Chu says, mostly using what we call supernatural type of things, astrology and so on, to convince Chinggis Khan. Whenever Chinggis Khan's about to do something bad or something that you shouldn't do, something astrological will show up. Um, or there'll be a Jiao Duan beast, a, one-horned beast that they will see that speaks the languages of, of many peoples and this beast tells Chinggis Khan, go home <laughs> basically <laughs> um, although it's interesting that GiaoGong beast is supposed to only appear to a true emperor so, so Yulichu you can both flatter Chinggis Khan, see this beast has appeared to you um, and then he can also there say, but the beast is telling you to stop your campaigns and go back to Mongolia, so um, it's sort of, uh, you can see a mix of flattery and also using sort of supernatural events to deter Mongol actions, which he doesn't like. But when he comes to Ogade, who is Genghis Khan's son and who is the great um, ancestor—not the great founder, but the great ancestor—that's his temple name that's used in there. Um, when it comes to Ogade, we have this interesting note in the in the in the uh, biography that says he began to talk about confucius and the duke of joe to him he actually began to give him what i call the full program so Chinggis khan was sort of in remedial learning um you know you can't really give him the full you know program but okade is a guy who's got a a future so you can give him the full program and so he does that and, and things really seem to work he really seems to be able to um um uh, impress Okada with the use that he can make of administration. There's a great moment where he sets out a schedule of taxation. And Okada is just astounded by the fact that he can predict ahead of time. Well, he predicts, here's how much tax revenue we're, g- we're going to get from your possessions in North China. A year later, they go there down to the you know that's exact same number of course you know so you put, you say how much you're going to collect and you um um uh and you collect that amount so there you go it's a it's a nice um it's a nice it's a, a nice demonstration of how regular administration could be predictable but then come it's a tragedy ultimately this story is a tragedy because there are other officials these um Officials from the West, people that are sometimes called Uyghurs or Turkistanis, also kind of including people we call Tajiks, uh, Iranians, so on. Basically, people from the West, often with you know the, the stereotypical uh, Western features in Chinese eyes of you know big noses, deep eyes, and large beards. These guys come in and they they start tempting Ogaday with some other kind of you could you could have higher tax rates and you can get more money. And and then ultimately Ogade, who also has a trouble with drink, he drinks too much. Uh, he he's weakly gives in to these tempting scenarios made out by these irresponsible Turkestani advisors. And he begin he like doubles the tax, tax quotas. And then he eventually dismisses Ilacutsa. He doesn't sort of get rid of him, but he sort of like takes him away from tax, affis- tax affairs. And so the end by the end of Ogade's reign, Ilacutsa is kind of he's honored, but he's not given any power. And then after Ogade, he he drinks himself to death. His widow Todegene takes power. His widow. Uh, further humiliates him and doesn't give him any influence at all. Although, so he has to turn back to astrology. He's got to do the astrology thing again to um, get him back. Uh, and so it kind of ends in a tragedy. And in a sense, this is Sun Jun's own account. Um, Sung Zijun was working for Kublai, and he he wrote this right at a time when Kublai, after a couple of years of very enthusiastic adoption of Chinese administrative models, seemed to be turning against it. And so this is a, this work is, it's speaking, it's also, it's a history of Ila Chutsai's time, but it's also speaking to the period about 20 years after Ila Chutsai died, when Kublai, who has gone much further along in this sort of um, Chinese style administration than Okada ever did is also starting to turn away from it and keep doing something else. So it's it's uh, in in many ways it's the most um, I would say it's the most literary, self
1: consciously literary of the sources. Right, and that kind of brings us to uh, to the final source in which we kind of get to meet Kublai face to face, where Zhang Daohui has. It's a kind of a recording, Zhang Hui's notes on the journey of traveling to and having conversations and interactions with Kublai. What was your sense reading this? That like it, it's a very selective representation of this kind of this Mongol empire emperor. And um, do you find that there are various aspects of Kublai's representation in these sources that you found sort of wanting or incomplete?
0: Yeah. Well, it's certainly um, um, the, the, the the account. Has is uh, two things are really interesting in the count. One is the description of of nature. Again, uh, Zhang Dehui, like um, um, another observer, the um, uh, Changchun, the famous Taoist, is a great observer of nature, and you get a great sense of the topography from him. Uh, but there's, there's also these kind of conversations with Kublai, and the conversations are, are 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 very interesting. I mean, they're they're. There, there's a lot of other accounts also of other conversations with Kublai. And what they have in common is that they, and th- with this one, is that they tend to present Kublai as very earnest, very well-meaning, pretty naive, actually. Um, he's and and eager to take advice. Um, and what's interesting is that we know that Kublai also had quite a bit of of um, um, his mother was um, Sorghattani Beki who was a a Christian of the Church of the East uh, a Syriac Christian it's likely that Kublai had lots of other um, um, both Christian and Muslim and probably also Uyghur advisors in his entourage. Kublai Khan was literate. Uh, He was literate in Mongolian. He looks like he was able to speak Chinese to some degree uh, but he was not Literate in Chinese, but he was literate in Mongolian. The 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 presence of this other culture, this other literate, administratively sophisticated culture that was represented by Christian, Muslim, Uyghur advisors, that doesn't show up in these conversations at all. They are gone, uh, and and that is um, that's actually very characteristic of the Mongol Empire. Um, we see we see this in, in different sorts of ways in, in many Mongol Empire accounts. So, for example, uh, there's later um, Khan in the Middle East, Gazan Khan of the Mongols, and Rashid Din has, uh, who is a, a Persian advisor, gives almost like a blow a day by day account of where he was at any given point, in what he was doing. And there's another source; it's a Christian source. It gives also a day by day. And what you realize is, and and they they track exactly the, the date when they say he's in this city at that time, he's in. Traveling in the countryside in that, you know, the city in that time, they match exactly. And you realize, wait, hold on. The 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 the, per, the Persian writer never mentions the Christian cleric guy who was there. And the Christian cleric guy never mentions the Persian guy. They don't mention each other at all. Uh, each one wants to create the picture that only – we are the only conquered people that this Mongol Khan pays any attention to. So – uh, and that's uh, that's a misleading... That's a quite misleading impression. And of course, later on, when... And this is an account of Kublai as a young prince. So it's Kublai before he becomes the Khan. He's not Kublai Khan and this. He's just Kublai. One of... He's sort of... He's the nephew of the emperor. Um, so he's significant, but he's, he's not um, a, sort of a massively important figure. But he... Um, you can see that it, the... the um, that John um, Dewey is interested in that he has like these uh, rituals that he does with sort of bir- birch bark vessels. So it's kind of this idea again. Th- th- he puts a lot of emphasis. It's a, it, it, this is a ritual, liye, as he says in Chinese. So um, and and um, he he wants to I think picture Kublai as someone who has these sort of simple rudiments of ritual behavior, because that means he can be developed further. He can be cultivated, turned into someone who will follow the rituals. He also kind of points at Kublai at some point, starts counting on his fingers. Um, and I have a feeling that that is uh, also intended to emphasize Kublai. It still isn't that sophisticated. Um, so um, But... Um, but, yeah, so it's, 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 a, it's a favorable picture. He's writing for an audience back home, so to speak, in North China to say, this is a guy we can work with. This is a guy who's got a lot of potential. And, in fact, about 15 years after this account is written, um, Kublai is in a situation where his elder brother uh, has just died. Who, elder brother, who is the Khan? has just died. And there's a vacuum of power. And all these North Chinese officials start telling Kublai, you got to seize power, man. It's for the good of the realm. It's for the good of the country. It's for the good of the empire. Seize power. And so he seizes power uh, and in some ways precipitates the breakup of the Mongol Empire. But he then sinusized the administration, at least for, uh, at least for a couple of years before he before, the Chinese officials are uh, rudely reminded of the fact that there are also many other officials who aren't Chinese, who have very different administrative traditions, and those traditions are just as attractive to Kublai, maybe even more
1: attractive. Yeah, well, that's wonderful. We've, uh, we've worked through the five uh, sources now, and uh, I I have taken up a lot of your time, but I do have a few more questions that I, I would love to squeeze in, if that's okay. Just about your overall experience of this decades-long process of working very closely with the sources. Because I find with these kind of um, historical sources, uh, in, in my case, working with the classical Chinese tradition, it's easy to instrumentalize texts. You know, we mine them for information and data of these kind of facts but um, was your experience in working with these that, like, they they had a – to varying degrees, they had a distinctive literary quality to them and something that was very aesthetic about them. Did you feel that some were better written than others uh, rhetorically?
0: Yeah, definitely. I mean, um, I guess I would put a um, – in some ways, the, my favorite one was the last one, Notes of a Journey. I, I really liked the – um, uh, I I I liked the the nature description. I also like the conversation. Um, the conversation between him and Kublai, and it's quite interesting. That the conversations are actually, um, I mean, you get. I also like to hear about you know they talk about issues, of, you know, about the past, or, you know, what was this historical issue. So it's almost like some of it is actually about uh, um, some conversation about what was really wrong with the Jin Dynasty. Um, is it that they had too much confucianism of course for john DeHui, that's impossible he says no it's because they they never actually paid attention to the confucian officials it was always the princes of the royal family and the generals who were who had the final say so we get a kind of historical disquisition so that um, and that's very that's a very compact very well written highly elusive thing you really need to um, understand the illusion. the same thing is also true about the um, uh, the um, uh, spirit path steely for his honor yelun. That's also a very sort of classically written, full of allusions um, that I, I did my best to sort of track out uh, and trace. Um, a lot of them to the Hanshu and to the um, uh, Shiji. Um, the it also concludes with an an ode, um, a, a poem, poetic section that is a sort of poetic praise of him. That I had that that was very difficult, um, and I had a lot of help from um, uh, Sisyang Wong, who's a professor at UCLA, who wrote um, uh, a wonderful book about the um, the um, uh, about the uh, Korean Mongol uh, Korean Ming diplomatic relations, and uh, he, he's, he, he writes poetry himself. He's a great uh, poet. He actually can read classical – yeah. Uh, he writes classical Chinese poetry himself. He's a wonderful uh, person. He's been very helpful. It he was very helpful for that. Uh, again, a lot of the allusions, I had to get that. So on the other hand – so those are the ones that I think are, are really, and you could say, sort of self-consciously literary. Um, Zhao Gong, one of the problems is that, as I mentioned, he was – copied one version of copied by this other guy this um Tao in his sort of private reading notes it also means that there's a lot of mistakes um and i so i had to do quite a bit of 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 um, guessing at what characters he means at one point there's something about um like he the, the mongols cut their fingers to um to uh to remember remember their affairs it's like no they don't cut, cut their fingers and it's like it's a cutting stick um you know sort of like you know, there's, there's some interesting things like that where it's like you have this like barely plausible interpretation and it, barely plausible interpretation or you could just Change the character a little bit, and then oh, then that makes something that is well corroborated somewhat some other way. So you don't want to go too far along those um, lines, but um, but yeah. So the poor Zhao Gong, his memorandum on the Hmong Tatars, uh, has been a little bit um, beaten up by history. Um, uh, so, and it's 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 also uh, though that and also Peng Dai and Shu Ting's are both actually much shorter versions of a longer work. So there's a full report which they would give to their to their superiors. Uh, that full report probably had a lot more details about diplomatic conversations and what they're sort of saying. But um, these are kind of summaries. But you know, they they they're um, they're fun to work with. And they they def both of them very have a, a very clear point of view. I like the I like looking at. and I try to get my students to understand to look at these authors in some sense as kind of contemporaries or sort of people, you need to take Gong's view of the Mongols sort of seriously. You need to fe- take the, 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 you know, Pengde had one view, Xu Ting had another, and they're kind of doing this kind of crosstalk, uh, Xiang Xiang, you know, sort of thing between them. Um, and you got to take that seriously as, as, as possible opinions, and then there's uh, Li Xinchuan. Li Xinchuan is very—he's um, the one who the most seems to be kind of like. You see, he's 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 very—he's the you're very urbane, sophisticated, yet also quite um, um, careful historian. He's more like he's kind of like your more your your your, your 20th century academic historian. He's not gonna, you know, um, he's he's gonna report the facts as you see them. Uh, he's open to Interesting things, but he is going to pretty much describe political events and do so in a very, very careful and measured sort of way. So each one of them has their own literary quality, um, and it was fun to work between them. Again, one of the things I really like is when you can sort of see Ila Chutsai first as this admiring figure that is talked about by Sim Tzu-Jun, but then also he shows up for the first time, he's just this kind of random Chinese official in Jiao who's making a calendar or something, you know, like nobody else knows why he's doing it. Uh, so
1: wonderful, and th- that leads us to our last question, which is, um, what's next after this? So you you've now got a, the Secret History of translation out. We've had this translation out for about two years. Are there any other texts that you are working on translating, or that are there out there that need someone else to translate to add to this pool? There is one, yes. There's a, a big uh,
0: text, which is the. Um, and this is a text, it's what I call the Secrets of the Mongols' little brother. The um, Secretist of the Mongols was probably written around 1252 uh, under and, um Khan. Uh, but under Mokha Khan's brother, Kublai Khan, they wanted to have a history of the Mongols that was kind of like the Secrets of the Mongols and that it, like, gave a Mongol-centered point of view, not an outsider-centered point of view, but was also more in tune with the Chinese conventions of historiography, kind of like a, a bunji and sort of origins and annals. So conventionally translated as basic annals, but I think the understanding at this time was there was an origin, bun and ji, annals. So they wanted a text like that. Kublai wanted a text like that. And he, he worked at it. Um, um, it and it probably didn't work at it personally, but what he kept on having to do is that he had to get Chinese officials to work on the sucker uh, and they kept on like wanting to make it more like a Chinese history and then it was like, no, no, no. We, we, it, 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 if you study the process, it looks, it seems that he's really trying to prevent them from excessively sinusizing this history. He wants to keep it um, not like the secret history. It's much more public. It's much less, doesn't have the poetry, doesn't have the, the family dynamics, but it's it's about public records, but it's also very much more Mongol. So that then becomes the Lu, the, the what I would translate as the authentic chronicle of the great founder of the Yen Diocese. That's the authentic chronicle of Genghis Khan. It later becomes the Shengwu, it's retitled, it's packaged in with also the annals of Okadei, becomes the Shengwu, Xinjiang Lu, the... Um, literally the personal campaigns conducted by the holy warrior or something like that but holy wars is just a taboo name for Genghis khan in fact pelio's translation the campaigns of Genghis khan if i think just it's the correct translation um the dynamic equivalence translation that is a very very complex source it was originally written in Mongolian. it's preserved in chinese and also in a persian paraphrase and so one of the things i was doing one of the things that actually kind of delayed these was that i i worked for decades on a f- translation this with a full massive academic commentary on the Shangwu wu lu which has never been translated into um um fully into uh, english before uh there's a very partial translation by Pelio, um and um and a mongolian translation which is um it uh, doesn't really deal with the, the very complex issues. So that is the next big thing uh, for that. and I hope to have that. I hope that I'm, I'm what I'm gonna do basically is whatever I'm done with at the end of this semester, I'm going to just deliver that to the press and that will be it. So I mean, I've, I've been working on it for so long. I mean it's all at this question at this point, I mean, you know, in some sense, I mean, all the sentences make sense, or at least if they do, if I don't have a horrible typographical error in them, um, which I frequently do. Um, but it's more like, have I taken into account this new source? Have I taken into account this new article that came out a couple of years ago or something like that? So working on that.
1: Well, that's a very exciting development. And uh, I think we're going to look forward to um, to seeing that kind of hit the presses soon. Uh, well, I Well, thank you very much, Chris, uh, for uh, sparing the time to talk to us today about this uh, great book, um, The Rise of the Mongols, Five Chinese Sources by Hackett in 2021. I've been Lance Percy, and uh, this is the New Books Network, New Books in Chinese Studies. Thank you. Bye, Chris. (music)